0: Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from 1st Naz podcast. Before beginning with verse 12, Matthew writes, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea, that's down in the south end of the nation, and returned to Galilee, which was the hill country up in the north. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. End of quote. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus and John the Baptist were somehow related, second or third cousin, something like that. They were just about the same age, too, born just six months apart. They did not, however, grow up together. We know precious little about the details of either one of their uh, growing up years for certain, but based on a handful of clues from the texts, we've been able to deduce some things about each of them. John the Baptist was born to older parents. It was considered a miracle in the first place that they were ever able to conceive, and the Bible presents the story on the level of the miraculous. God did something that enabled that family to have children. But once we get past the joy of that fantastic miracle, we're left with the probability that Zechariah and Elizabeth probably didn't survive much of John the Baptist's childhood. We uh, see him only years later as an adult showing up dressed strangely. And by his style of dress and by his style of preaching and by the chosen location of his ministry activities, we're, we know pretty close to for certain that he grew up in a place that was something like a monastery a place called Qumran, which was in the desert and down in the southern end of the nation. Qumran was home to a group of Old Testament scholars who developed a rather sharp tone in criticizing the prevailing Israeli culture and religion of the day. They were extremists. They were kind of sort of throwbacks to another day and time, and and they were proud of it. And from that community, there emerged this firebrand preacher, a young man about age 30. His name was John. And he had a tendency to rant and to rave and to name names of public officials and to call them account for for their corruption. Hey, maybe we should get a guy like that. What do you think? Hmm? Oh, I better go back to preaching instead of talking politics. Uh, John, the guy who uh, got up in people's faces. He said to the commoners who enjoyed it whenever he criticized religious officials or governing officials, hey, I'm talking to you too. You too need to turn away from your former way of life and and turn back towards God. Then he said, baptism is a good way to get started, but you better get in the water before I change my mind. Kind of a ranting, raving sort of guy. Jesus was raised completely differently, where John the Baptist's parents were old. Jesus' mom was probably a little bit too young, if you know what I mean. And immediately upon his birth, things got all kinds of crazy. If you read the Christmas story as it's recorded in Matthew and Luke, there were astronomical and astrological phenomena, strange things happening in the sky that mystical people said were pointing toward the birth of a great king. And on the night of his birth, angels, we read, tore the skies open announced the uh, arrival of Jesus to some lowly shepherds who then ran from the fields into town, started waking people up, making a stink, and turning uh, somewhat of a tumult in the town. And for some reason... Joseph and Mary, after that blessed event, decided to stick around for a while. For a couple years, it seems, they hung out there in the, in the vicinity of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Cause that's about how long it took for some stargazing religious people to walk all the way from Iran to what we call the Holy Land. They showed up there about two years after Jesus was born. Seems that they had been looking at the skies and something up there had pointed them the direction of the birth of a new king. So they came to the land of Israel. They found its current king, King Herod, and asked about the birth of his successor. Note to self, that can never go well. If you want to find the new little baby king, don't talk to the guy who's sitting on the throne right now. He might take it personally. Well, the uh, wise men, as we like to call them, then found their way to Jesus. They paid their respects. They presented some gifts. And then they were warned in a dream that Herod, the guy they had blabbed to, was up to no good. So they avoided him. They went home by a different route. All kinds of dreams taking place here in the first part of the book of Matthew. Joseph, who was Jesus' stepfather, was warned in a dream too, that he was going to need to take evasive action because Herod was not going to take this new king business lying down. So he took Mary and Jesus, and he literally moved to a foreign country. He went to Egypt, and he stayed there for a few years. Herod, in the meantime, decided that, uh, not knowing who Jesus was and not knowing that he slipped out of the country, decided that he couldn't pin down just who this baby king was so he would take care of it on a larger scale. And he ordered the execution of every single boy aged two and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem, an event that now historically is known as the slaughter of the innocents. Following that, Joseph had a couple more dreams, this time telling him it was safe to go back to Israel, but not near the nation's capital. So he packed up the fam and he headed back to Israel and he skipped the southern end of the country where all the religious and political scene was and did his best to just quietly disappear into the hill country in the north. Went to a little town in the mountains, an insignificant little place called Nazareth. And it was there that Jesus grew up, Matthew tells us. So here's these two cousins. One who grew up probably raised by monks in the deep south. One who grew up as half fugitive, hopscotching from the suburbs of the nation's capitals to a foreign country and then off to some hick hamlet off the grid in the north, a little place that wasn't taken seriously by anybody that mattered, let alone the real movers and shakers in their country. Cousin from the south, John the Baptist, all of a sudden as a grown-up, just appears on the national scene in the south where he was quickly making both friends and enemies. The politicians hated his guts because he accused them of corruption, said what kind, and who they were involved with, which they would rather have kept a secret. And yet, they kept showing up. They just couldn't stop listening to this guy. The religious leaders hated him too because they were jealous of his popularity and because he told them that they and their kind of religion were dead. Common people absolutely loved it whenever John would light up the priests and would light up the the, uh, governing officials. During this time, Jesus, who had been living quietly in the north growing up, had gone south and, for the purpose of taking in firsthand his cousin's earth-shaking ministry. And in fact, he showed up and asked John to baptize him. From there Jesus headed into the wilderness for a 40-day fast. He faced some serious temptations that we've talked about over the last 3 weeks. If you if you go back and read that section of scripture, you can actually stand a chance in your own battle against temptation if you learn from his. Well, Jesus and John the Baptist ministry sort of overlapped there in the south for a little bit, the an area that's called Judea for a little bit. But John the Baptist got a little bit too good at what he was doing, a little bit too pointed in his name-calling and finger-pointing, and Herod had him arrested. And when this happened, Jesus stuck his finger up in the air, tested the winds, and realized uh, things in the south were a little bit uh, unstable at the moment. So he headed out. He went back home. He cleared out of the south and headed to the north country. And when he got back up there, he stopped in his hometown, Nazareth. From reading other gospel accounts, we find out, Jesus didn't stay there long, and we found out why. It's because in his hometown, everybody said, he's just a schmuck, he's no better than the rest of us. I don't know who he thinks he is. We know the circumstances of his birth. <clears throat> Here he is pretending like he's better than all of us. So Jesus was in Nazareth for a very short while. but wasn't there too long before he picked up and he moved to another town. There's was a little fishing village on the north shore of a body of water whose name changed every time some new politician came into power. So some people around there called it the Sea of Galilee, and some called it Kinneret, and some called it the Lake of Gennesaret, and some called it Lake Tiberius. But the town was a cool little fishing village called Capernaum, and Jesus sort of made that His ministry headquarters. Have you noticed over the last couple of weeks, how the population centers along the coasts of our nation act like the L.C. Valley doesn't even exist? Did you notice that? They carried on their business, but they didn't listen at all to what we had to say. Have you noticed how Idaho doesn't exactly seem to, to factor prominently in the minds of the Washington, D.C. set these days? Did you notice that? Well, as far as they're concerned, We are a million miles away and therefore completely out of the picture. And that's how the Jerusalem set thought of the north country, the Galilean region in which Jesus lived. They even had nicknames for it, too. They called it the far off country or they called it the land of darkness. Some called it the shadow lands. Matthew knew that. And it's sort of how he thought of that region too. And it's why when he reflected on Jesus moving back there and starting to preach his one central message there, Matthew said, man, it was like somebody finally turned on the lights up there in the dark country. It's like the people who had never seen the light of day were finally allowed to. And when they did, man, they got really bright up there. Whoever would have thought among those people. And then Matthew said, hey, you know, come to think of it, I think I read something about this. Didn't one of the old time prophets say that something like that was going to happen? And so he went to his scriptures, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who had spoken very extensively to those northern hillbilly folk. He talked to them about the coming of a miracle worker and a teacher. It was a... Prophecy that was coming to pass. What was the central message that Jesus preached that made all the lights come on for Matthew and all of the people of the North Country? What was it that the prophets had foretold that made Matthew remember and made people start talking about a Messiah? It was this one short sentence Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven. Is at hand. This announcement, this message of Jesus that He preached everywhere He went, made people s- <coughs> excuse me sit up and take notice. These were religious people. They'd heard a ton of messages and lessons, but this message was different. It got their attention and it held it. They couldn't stop thinking about it and talking about it at home and at work and with their friends. It made Matthew think, man, this is the fulfillment of those ancient prophecies. This guy might actually be the Messiah. He might actually be the grand fixer that the prophets promised. Jesus' message, repent of your sins. Turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, offended the religious leaders in the north country, and it alarmed the ones down in the nation's political and religious capital. And in the next few minutes, I want to share with you three things about that message that were so utterly life changing and world changing in that time and still can be today for those who have ears to hear what God is saying. So let's ask him to do that for us right now. Lord before we turn our attention further to Your Word, we want to ask that You will just shake us up a little bit. We don't need one more message to forget. We don't need one more among thousands of sermons. Shake us up. Amen. I am telling you that this message is a game changer if you really get it. I so hope that that happens for you this morning. It was this message that grabbed Jesus' first audience and shook their world, literally became a revolution. It was this message that caused some men to leave literally everything that they had ever known and traipse around that nation, often fearing for their lives for good reason. It was this message that emboldened Jesus' first followers to stare down governors and to stare down kings and to stare down soldiers and lions and accept either continued life in this world or an express trip to the next and to look at that as an upgrade. And here's the message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I told you earlier that I want to show you three things about this message that I believe can change your life. So consider yourselves warned. If you don't want your life to change, go to sleep. Or ignore the message, or just don't believe it. But if you come to understand what Matthew meant when he wrote those words, what Jesus meant when he said those words, life is going to change for you. So here's three things. The first one is this, the kingdom of heaven. What in the world is that? Well, if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, read the Bible at all, you will find a a handful of phrases that function as synonyms. You will find Jesus and the guys talking about the kingdom of heaven, or they will talk about the kingdom of God, and rarely, but occasionally, you will hear them refer to the kingdom of Christ. These are all synonyms. When we think kingdom, however, you and I start thinking about people wearing pointy hats, right? And heavy clothes, when we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, as we read about it in the Scriptures, it's not about the trappings of royalty. It's not about capes that real men don't want to wear anyway, right? It's not about castles, and it's not about defining some section of real estate where I can say, I'm more important than anybody else. I'm richer than anybody else. I'm in control. Nobody else is that's not what we're talking about. Me getting my little place that's mine where I can be king. When you read about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven in the Scriptures, it's talking about the rule of God. Not just some place where God's in charge, but the announcement that He is the God of heaven and of earth. When we read about the kingdom of heaven, The kingdom of heaven is an answer to a question, an answer to a request. It is God responding to his people's cry to come and fix the brokenness of this world that hurts and destroys humanity. Have you prayed that prayer? Have you prayed that prayer where you have asked God to come and fix this mess? Maybe you're not looking past the four walls of your house. You don't have to look any farther than that to say, God, I need you to come and fix the mess. Maybe you just look at the place where you work and you say, God, get down here. We need your help. Work doesn't work like it's supposed to. Maybe you lift your gaze just beyond that and you start looking at political officials and you start pointing your finger, but at the same time, you're crying, God, please, would you just come? Every time we pin our hopes that people will fix this, people never fix this. God, would you come? Straighten out the mess. The kingdom of God that we read about in the scriptures is God answering that kind of prayer. The kingdom of God has another meaning as we read about it in the scripture. Um, It's one of the two halves of time that the Jewish people understood. Jewish people uh, looked at this world not as having seven different eras, but two, exactly two. It was the time before the Messiah and the time of the Messiah. And as soon as Messiah got there, all the rest of time, that's that's one chunk. And they called the time before Messiah got there the this present age. And then they talked about the time when Messiah would come and forever after as the age to come. Or they would refer to these days and the last days. Or the former days and the last days. Okay, America, listen to me. When this when the Jews wrote about the last days, they weren't talking exclusively about sometime right before the end of time. They were talking about the day that Messiah showed up on the earth because they believed that under the reign of Messiah, everything changes. These latter days would be the time of Messiah's ministry on earth, a time characterized by the descriptions of, Messiah, of of Isaiah. If you read that book, he said it would be a time when righteousness would be restored, when people would start acting like God had always dreamed they would. And being a practical guy, both God and Isaiah, he said it starts somewhere with a weak version of righteousness, but it grows and it grows and it grows. And one day we'll win the day. A time of restored and increasing righteousness. A time, he said, that would be ushered in by signs and wonders, specifically healing. You ever read anywhere about some guy doing a lot of healing? That time, Isaiah said, Jesus said, the Scriptures say, is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? It's the reversal of the curse. If you read the Bible from beginning to end, it starts with this Edenic place called Eden. <laughs> uh, it's preacher humor. Sorry, okay? Um, paradise. Everything perfect. People too. People and God together. No pushing matches. God and people, tighten. But it got messed up broken horribly. And on top of the breakdown that came from us basically um, shoving God out of our lives, rebelling against Him, God then laid down a curse and said, oh, you want some of that? There you go. Take it to the nth degree. See how that goes. And the Scriptures teach us that all of this time since, the earth has been laboring under this curse. However, however, The writings about Messiah talk about the curse being reversed. And by the time you read the last book of the Bible, you hear that the curse is no more. Gone. Completely gone forever. Why? Because it's the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, God rules. The kingdom of God is the work of Jesus on the cross, which purchased far more than just the forgiveness of sins, though we're very grateful for that. We also believe that because of what Jesus did on the cross, that there are going to be some things that change in this world. The cross of Jesus will bear fruit in the systems of men. Here's what I mean. Not only will you get forgiven for the naughty things that you've done, but he can go to work in, let's say, the system of your family and begin to shape it and make it healthy and whole. Do you believe that? That God can change a family? Do you believe that God can change a church from the inside out? I do. We're sitting right in the middle of one. That God's turning inside out and making healthy and beautiful and good. And He's using it to really give shape to our valley. Well, if you believe that kind of stuff, then you better, better just follow with me here. Do you believe God can change that group of friends of yours? Do you believe that, that He can change the way your workplace does what it does? Come on, roll with me. Where does it go from here? Can He change our town? Can He change City Hall? Can can He change Boise? Even though they stole our capital? I learned you have to say that. Do I get counted as a native now? The Scriptures seem to indicate that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not only can we be forgiven of our sins, but the systems of mankind can change. I'll tell you what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is God getting His way in this world. It's the people of God living like we believe Jesus really was and is the Messiah, the grand fixer, and like He really did change things, and like He really still does make a difference. Every time any person takes Him seriously and takes seriously what He's capable of in this world, God says, great, I'll work with you. And He goes about change. First thing is this, the kingdom of heaven. What is that? It's all that. Second thing is this, the kingdom is near, Jesus said. All right. (coughs) Uh, I talked, I think last week about preacher tricks. We do this often where we uh, read a text in English and then we say, but that's not what the original language said. And uh, the reason that we do that is because sometimes people make mistakes in translation, or because I dis. That'd be great, Rick. Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah. Today, no preacher tricks. Okay? Do you know what the word near means? It does not mean far. Okay? Near does not mean far. Near means near. The, the phrase, as we read it, was, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay? <clears throat> if you have a right hand, I want you to hold it, like, well, just put it right here. Everybody do this. And everybody, I mean everybody. Okay? Okay? Now, push it as far away from you as you can. Still near. Okay, we're not doing a Grover here. This isn't near and far. This is near and nearer. But I, I, can, I can always get at least, you know, within one arm length of my hand. Right? Isn't that neat the way that works? Yeah. Yeah. See, at hand means that close. Right, right there. At hand means where you can get a hold of it. You, you don't have to do this anymore, okay? At hand means close enough that you can touch it. At hand means right beside you. At hand means where you can see it. At hand means where you can grab a hold of it. The kingdom is right there, is what Jesus said. Right there and no further. The kingdom is mine. If it, if it's right there, I can get a hold of it and it is now mine. Let, let me work with this phrase just a little bit. It means that the kingdom is now. Let me read to you a few passages of scripture. Okay, this one is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. It is also quoted in Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Again, in Luke chapter 9, verse 27. Three of the gospel writers all say some version of this, almost word for word. Jesus speaking, and he said to them, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here, will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Not speaking to us, speaking to those who were with him that day, he said, I tell you the truth, those who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says, Somebody had accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He said, nope, not the way that it works. He said, how about this? If I can cast out this demon that's in front of this uh, child, or in this child right before you, if I can cast out that demon, then the kingdom has arrived among you. Gone. Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. If I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, And the kingdom has arrived among you, and he cast out the demon. Therefore, the kingdom had come among them. Mark chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, Jesus said, This is my blood. We're now at the uh, last supper. This is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you know the rest of the story of the life of Jesus? That night, later that evening, he was uh, was arrested, beaten, tortured, kangaroo court of a trial. He was executed by the Roman state, crucified, buried. That's day one. Day two, he was in the tomb. Day three, He came out of the tomb, then showed Himself to many people, from individuals to groups of up to 500. But we read the story in one of the Gospels of Jesus walking down the road with two guys who, for whatever reason, believed the Jesus story, but couldn't recognize Jesus for who He was. And they were leaving Jerusalem right after the whole crucifixion ugly event. Jesus then explained to them how the Old Testament Scriptures proved that He was, in fact, the Messiah. And the lights were coming on for these guys. And they were starting to gain some confidence in, in sharing this message with other people. It was almost dark. They came to a little town. Those two guys had arranged to meet Jesus' other followers there. Jesus acted like He was just going to go further down the road. They said, come on, come on. Spend the night here with us. You've got to tell the rest of the people what you just told us. The disciples are here. Tell them. So Jesus sat down. And he explained to them how the Old Testament proved that he was the guy that God sent into the world to fix it. Then he did what? He ate and drank with them. He said before, this is my blood which confirms a covenant between God and his people. It's poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Three important things for you to learn about this message. Number one, you've got to know what the kingdom of heaven is. You've got to know what the kingdom of God is. It is the dreams of God coming true. This world beginning to be set aright by Jesus and the people who have the power of Jesus living within them. It is God's dream for this world coming true. And he said it's not some long distant future event. He said the kingdom is at hand. Close enough that you can get a hold of it. And in many ways in the Scriptures, it paints the picture for us that Jesus wasn't talking about maybe someday. Maybe after someone's written and many millions have read the Left Behind series, the kingdom can come. No. No. He said to His people that day, the kingdom is at hand. What are you waiting for? The third point is this. The third part of this message that you just got to get is this. You can live in this kingdom. You can live in this kingdom right now. I don't mean you can live in this kingdom if you live long enough to see the kingdom of God come because I'm telling you today, the kingdom has already Come, it is here among us and has been for a couple thousand years now. I say to the church of Jesus Christ everywhere, what are we waiting for? When Jesus said before he took off the first time and before he took off the second time, the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near. That's why we have the word near at the bottom of the words with friends board. And not the word far. You can live in this kingdom. The kingdom is a present reality. You do not have to wait for it to come. Hopefully, maybe, someday. The kingdom doesn't begin when Jesus returns to this earth. It began when He came the very first time. The kingdom is a present reality. You don't have to wait to get in. The kingdom is a present reality. Yes, it will get better and better, but it's real now. It will get more and more obvious as time goes on, as we get better at being the church, better at doing what we can do by the power of His Spirit. But the kingdom is now. The kingdom is a present reality because you have been living its lifestyle. But the kingdom will become all the more obvious as you live it by the power of the Spirit and as you live out its privileges and its power and its possibilities if you believe that he has a kingdom. And if you believe he's the king. And if you believe what he said, which is the kingdom is a hand. In many ways, the church of Jesus has limped along and been ineffective in its mission. I think there's a number of reasons for that. Sin has weakened the church. Satan has distracted the church. But the church has also been deceived into thinking that, well, the world's just going to get worse and worse until Jesus comes. So we have, to, might as well just give in and wait until he gets back before we do anything. Listen, I don't know where that crazy version of the, of the gospel came from. I just can't find it in the Bible. Every time I say this, somebody says, oh, the Bible says it's just going to get worse and worse. It's chapter and verse, people. Help me out. Because you know what I read about in the Scriptures? I read about people who before knowing Jesus were in the grips of sin. Some of them hated the message of Jesus and His church. They have their lives completely reversed to where they become its chief proponents, the Apostle Paul. You know what I see in the Scriptures? I see loudmouth knuckleheads like Peter who constantly was sticking his foot in his mouth. And when it came right down to it, after 3 years with Jesus and him saying I'm with you no matter what, mm, said I don't even know the guy start cussing and swearing about it to try to help people really believe his cover story. That guy a few days later by the power of the Holy Spirit living in the present reality of the kingdom became this eloquent spokesperson who when he just explained the Jesus story, 3,000 people said, "Got it. I want in. I want in the kingdom." He traipsed all around the known world of his day. Him and a handful of people similarly empowered by the Holy Spirit and believing that the kingdom was coming, it had come and was on the march. And they talked people everywhere into believing it. And do you know what happened everywhere they took the message and people believed? Transformation. Bring it in up forward uh, 1,700 years. This guy by the name of John Wesley living in the armpit of the earth. England. And um, it was bad. It was bad. Hey, it was then I didn't say anything about England today. Relax. It was ugly. England in that day was ugly. Uh, but the one thing that the British are really, really good at is saving newspapers. So uh, the libraries there uh, have newspapers from hundreds of years ago. You can read newspapers from the day of John Wesley, the mid, early to mid-1700s. When you read about uh, England in those days you read that public sanitation was at an all time low people went to the bathroom in this thing called a chamber pot there was a pot that they kept in the chamber <clears throat> then they went to the door and they threw it in the street so did the people up the hill so did the people down the hill and so did the people on the second story all clear <laughs> before you go outside right But you read the stories of of England in that day, and they talked about human excrement being stacked so deep on both sides of the street that from the first story windows, you couldn't see the horses and carriages go by. Living at the bottom end of that street was a bad place to live. You know what I mean? It's symbolic of many other things in their culture. No labor laws. People got used like fodder for the industrial machine, which was beginning to roar to life. No child labor laws, so little bitty kids were never given the chance to learn and never given a a chance to get out of the chains of poverty because they were just more grist for the mill of the industrial world that was taking off. The rich were very rich. The poor were very poor. There was nobody in between. But this guy named John Wesley, his brother Charles who were raised in the church, who watched all this happen and lived these anemic, powerless lives, who watched the church make no difference in their world, said it's kind of funny, but as we read this book, the Bible, it kind of talks like things can change. If, if a man will simply let God change him, he has to have some effect on the world around him. So the boys went off to college. They went to Oxford And there, they made the dumbest move of their lives. They formed a club and called it the Holy Club, which is a great way to get people to hate you, (laughs) right? But they called it the Holy Club plain and simply because they really wanted to be so completely given over to God and His power that they would be holy, meaning set apart for Him alone. These guys just said, we thought that the gospel was supposed to make a difference. We thought Jesus said the kingdom is at hand. So they said, let's just live like we're in a kingdom. His kingdom. By the end of his life, Britain ruled the world, people. They became the leader economically. They became the leader militarily. They became the leader industrially he became the leader in terms of human rights, then we taught him a few things about that as well. But because one man believed that he lived in the kingdom of God, he began to convince others you don't have to wait for it. By the power of his spirit, the kingdom is now at hand. Now. Where you can get a hold of it, where you can grab it, where you can get in. It changed the world. I know that Every book about the so-called end times that you've read and every so-called prophecy book says that the Bible says things are going to get worse and worse until God can't stand it anymore, and he sends Jesus back to bail out the most colossal loser in history, the church. It's just that I don't think the Bible says that at all. I think that the rule of Jesus has been declared and established. I think the church has been given a mandate to live like Jesus is in charge and to see that His rule is extended to the corners of our lives and the corners of our towns. I think that the church has been given an incredible opportunity to demonstrate the power of God to a world that desperately needs to know it. And unfortunately, what the church has shown the world is a watered-down, weakened version of what God dreamed. And I think that individual Christ followers have lived like the good stuff is all in the future. Power. Victory. Kingdom life. We've been waiting to go to heaven instead of living in the reality of the kingdom of heaven that has come to this earth, has come already in the past. Kingdom is now. Kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. want to step into it today? You can. This will be the strangest invitation ever. I invite you into the kingdom of Jesus. We mailed the invitation about 2,000 years ago. Some of you have not RSVP'd. you thought, I got time. Kingdom's not coming for who knows how long. Maybe um, if, you're a, if you're a guest in our service today and you wonder what this crazy, ranting, raving person has been talking about, but you like the idea of a world that can change and where you get to play a part in it, I invite you to the kingdom. But in order to be a part of this kingdom, here's how it goes. Jesus gets to be king, not you. Okay, He gets to be king, and since he came and showed us how to live, he's an example for us. And since he came and then died selflessly as a sacrifice to make it possible for all of our sins to be forgiven, and then rose from the dead, he's a good candidate for king. Because number one, we know that he has the people's well-being at heart. And number two, he can't die again. And if we can just get the right king on the throne, you know what I mean? If we can just get the right king on the throne. I mean, if we can just get the right king on the throne, right? I vote for Jesus. And if you believe that he's the right guy to be king, then you will admit that at times your life has not reflected him and his desires. Today you want to ask Him to forgive you of all that? He will. And He will invite you to step into His kingdom. And He will come and live inside you. I know, there's no way to make that sound less crazy than it does. But the God will come and live inside you. And you will find a kingdom that works its way from the inside out if you are not a guest in our services today and you have been sitting in these pews for a very long time, I want to invite you into the kingdom of God today. I I think this church in many ways gets it better than others because I see you guys do kingdom things. Like you actually think that poor people can be fed. Like we have enough money to do that. 193 we fed last night. 193 people got to rub up against the kingdom last night. Let's invite some of them to step into it. What do you say? I watch watch teenagers build beds and deliver them to some places that you cannot imagine. You know why? Because the kingdom has come. That's why they do it. They're just living out the kingdom. But if you have been a part of this church for a very long time and you've been... You've been sitting passively by. This morning, I have no shame on you to offer. I just have some good news. The kingdom you've been waiting for, it's already rolling, baby. All you got to do is step in. You can be a part of the kingdom of God, which revolutionizes this world, but understand that the kingdom will revolutionize you. If you step into the kingdom, then the king who comes to live in your heart gets to reshape your priorities. He gets to reshape your values. He gets to reshape your politics. He gets to. Well, he gets to reshape you. All of you. All of you. I will go on to say this there's no salvation outside of the kingdom. So if you believe in Jesus, but are going to continue to live outside the kingdom, Just work with kingdom stuff for a minute. If you're not a part of the kingdom, you're against it. Today, you get to make a choice in or or not in. We do this every once in a while, about once a month around here. We serve a meal. It's a symbolic meal. It's not big enough to make your stomach quit growling. We even offer gluten free for people who need it. Okay? But we offer this meal. Tiny little piece of bread. In the back, you may only see my hand. Can't even see the bread from back there. We serve. The tiniest conceivable portions of grape juice. Why do we do this? For sentimental reasons? No. Why do we put it in something that looks like finer table settings than I have at my house? Looks like. Well, it looks like it belongs on a king's table, doesn't it? You know why we do that? It's because every time that we come to take this meal, we do it hoping to be part of a kingdom. But for many of us, the kingdom's been a future dream. I'll eat and drink this in the hopes that maybe one day I don't know how to convince you, so I'm not going to try. I simply read Jesus' words to you that said, if I cast out demons, the the kingdoms among you. He said to people in his original audience, some of you will not taste death before you see the kingdom come in power. We sit here 2,000 years later. Reading those words. Do you believe? The kingdom's at hand. It's right here. If as an act of faith today, you say, I want to be a part of the kingdom of Jesus. I want the world to work like God dreamed, and I'm willing to be part of the workforce that, that brings it about. I want God to begin to fix the systems of men. I want Him to fix my heart, and then I want Him to use me to fix things around me. I want God and His kingdom to come and revolutionize my family. I want the kingdom of God to become real in my workplace. I want the kingdom of God to transform politics. I want the kingdom of God to to change schools. I want the If you want the kingdom of God, then consider this your invitation today. And the simple act of walking forward and asking to be served these things is all the faith that it takes for God the Holy Spirit to go big in and through you. Great pep talk, Cliff. I don't get, well, I do give pep talks. Sorry, I do, but only when I coach. When I preach, I don't give pep talks. I'll tell you this much. I'm not waiting for any kingdom. Tired of waiting. I'm living in the kingdom of God. That's why I do what I do. I want to invite you. I want to ask you. I want to beg you. Please come be part of this kingdom. Because the change that we've all been dreaming for does not have to wait. Holy Spirit makes possible kingdom living. The blood of Jesus established this kingdom. For 2,000 years, people like me have been standing around proclaiming it. Today, you hear and you believe. Just come. Uh, Pastor Aaron, Pastor Bill, I want to ask you to come. They're just going to be standing here at these aisles. We'll ask you to come forward. You can uh, do one of two things. You can either take the elements and take them back to your seat if you'd like to pray, think, whatever, a little longer. Um, But if you're ready to partake, why don't you just come and take the bread and take the wine and, and eat them right here and now. And let it be symbolic of your belief in Jesus and of your desire to be a part of his kingdom. Lord, we bow in your presence today. We want it to be true that your kingdom is here. Man, our eyes are filled with all kinds of signs that the message of the kingdom has not been told to very many people. We see corruption. We see disease. We see wars and hear rumors of them. We see families coming apart at the seams. But we read your word and it said the kingdom's here. For the ways that we have lived, like your spirit has no power, and like your word has no meaning, we ask forgiveness. And we ask for the gift of faith today. Faith that empowers us to believe what Jesus said. Faith that empowers us to receive his Holy Spirit. Faith that empowers us to go and live by the power of that spirit to transform our world. Thank you for making the offer of these symbols that we can taste, ingest, understand. King Jesus, thank you for setting the table and inviting us to the feast. That all those who want your kingdom to come I want to step into it today. Come and eat in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.